This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. You know, if you're not compelled by the profit side of it, you should be compelled by the human side of it, which is that it is just actually kind of just the right way to do it ethically. And even if it's not because it's going to make you a lot of money, it should help you understand that you'll have more impact in the world by doing so. That's the voice of Millie Schmidt. She's a product and UX designer. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, today we have a deep dive into design thinking. Mm, one of my favourite topics. I've been badgering you for the longest time to do a deep dive episode on this <laughs> and Millie does not disappoint. Yeah, it's an amazing discussion. I mean, we really unpack what is design thinking. Yeah, why the hell should you even care? And she walks us through the five-step process of how to employ design thinking for problems within your organisation. And stop, 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 stop. (laughs) Before you think I am not a designer, I don't have anything to do with like designing apps or posters or anything creative. This will be one of the most important episodes you listen to, whether you have to make your sales team better, whether you have to make a business process better. If you are solving problems at work, which you should be doing, then this episode is a must listen to. So, we started off by asking Millie to tell us what is design thinking? Design thinking is something that you're hearing more and more from not just designers, but other people, people in ads, in branding, in strategy, in marketing, in customer experience. And it's this idea that design itself isn't just a designer who is really fashionable and incredibly aesthetically minded and great at making very beautiful things, sitting in their Eames chair, just coming up with the most incredible design ever and then um, submitting it to you for a huge amount of money. It's a somewhat scientific process that can be used by designers and by non-designers to solve problems not necessarily in the design space. So this is why there's kind of design thinking. This process of design thinking is it's a kind of synthesis of a few different areas, but it's a five-step process. So the five steps. Step one, empathy. Step two, define. Step three, ideate. Step four, prototype. And step five, test. So those are kind of technical terms, but it's very simple when you actually break it down. So empathizing just means spending time with your users, or you might want to call them customers, or you might just want to call them people. So you're going and spending time with them. You're talking to them. You're listening to them. You're building an understanding of their problems. Then you have a defined stage where you are basically thinking about all that you learnt when you talk to those people and summarizing it and refining it and defining it into essentially like a a good scoping of that problem that you can start to use to take you to the next stage where you start thinking about solutions. So then ideating, the idea underneath that is that rather than just go with your first instinct and your first feeling about what the solution is, that you should spend some time ideating. So ideating just means kind of creatively workshopping lots of different ideas. So you're not just going with the first one that pops into your head, you're thinking of a few. And so ideally you want to share, do that with other people and have 
a few different people bringing in a few different ideas and then you can choose one of those ideas or maybe two of those ideas or maybe more to take to the next stage, which is prototyping. So you're basically doing kind of rough, high-level ideas and then the ones that win that you select go into the prototyping stage. So you make them into kind of fake products. So in the Google Ventures Design Sprint book, they talk about like a, it's almost like a movie set. So you've got, it, it feels like it could be real, but it's fake. So the idea is when you prototype something, it allows you to have something that you can test with people to validate whether you're right. So you could just build it, but the prototype is supposed to save you some time and money because engineering is expensive, essentially. So you've got this kind of fake prototype. I'm kind of thinking almost like some of these prototypes might be, for example, you could design them in Sketch or Photoshop or whatever you're doing and then hook them up in with hotspots so they're just like basically images that connect to each other. So there's no engineering, there's nothing. So an MVP is kind of a prototype which is like a lightweight engineering. It actually is a product. You could actually use it, yeah. So a good example would be designing something with a designer with mock-up or like just it's literally Photoshop and then you put it into a product like InDesign and then show that yeah, to the InVision, customer, the yeah. user, or InVision, sorry. Um, yeah, and then you can click through it and they get a bit of a feel for what it is. Um, but there is actually not even a, a, there's not even a product there. Right. I'll give you another example that's less UI. So, in again, in the design sprint book, they recounted a sprint that they did where they worked with a hotel who wanted to figure out some really groundbreaking way to change the experience of being a guest at that hotel, especially around room service. So, they were super interested in how could they make this this process of room service better? Because obviously, you know, we kind of know the traditional room service model, which is that you pick up the phone and you call the front desk and you ask for a toothbrush or whatever. And they're like, it's a bit old fashioned. It's not really how people work anymore. We've got all this technology that we can play with. What is some way that we can change that? And so they went through this process, this five-step process. What they came up with is a robot. And it's a little robot that can get into the lift and go to your door and knock on your door and it's got a little face and when you open the door there's a cute robot there and it does a little dance for you and then it's like hey I've got your thing for you and you press the button and it opens up and there's your toothbrush so that's pretty crazy right like it's a crazy idea how can you make you know a room service robot in five days they basically hacked something together with like a remote control car and an iPad and, you know, someone had the ability to, to wire up some little thing that allowed you to, I think it, it didn't even pop up, it just said open me up and so you could open up this kind of drawer thing. And so it was all basically remote control. Someone had a little car and the iPad was pre-programmed and it didn't actually have any programming. It was just like a set of keynote slides on it. And that was enough for them to test with some users how would they respond to a robot bringing them a toothbrush? And that was enough for them to test some of their core hypotheses and assumptions. So they were one of the things that they were worried about were like people aren't going to like it, they're going to find it too weird or they're going to be scared or they're not going to know how to interact with it. And when they tested it, they found that people really liked it and they didn't find it too difficult at all. And importantly, the little dance and stuff that they made the robot do was actually a huge part of the prototype success. And they were like, well, we can do this, but we have to make it super cute and super fun. And that's going to be a, a huge part of making this a seamless customer experience. So that's like, a, I'm trying to 
give that as an example to show that it doesn't just have to be, this isn't just for website design, this can be for service design and other forms of design as well. And so the test, the prototypes, obviously the, the, the simple version, the test is when you actually take that prototype into market and then you're testing your assumptions effectively to see whether it's worth continuing to explore. Right. So test doesn't necessarily have to be testing in market, but it's testing with people in the same way that you empathized with people. So um, some of these things could be market driven in that like if you're trying to solve like a pricing model or something, you might actually be making a, an actual landing page with an actual price point and an actual conversion. But the test could be as simple as a usability test, which is basically showing someone a prototype and getting them to walk you through their reactions to it. So they're speaking out loud and doing essentially trying to complete a task unguided. Or it could be something way more technical. So it could be, you know, a full lab test where you're maybe tracking people's eye movements and stuff like that. Or it could be, you know, building a a robot and sending it up someone's hotel room with like a hidden camera. So there's all sorts of things. I think what's really exciting about the way you define design thinking here is that it can be used so broadly in solving a range of business problems, um, probably personal problems as well, but we'll leave that out for now. <laughs> no, no, no. That's actually um, a really important point. Um, so the guys who developed design thinking um, is the Stanford D School. So this is their framework. I mean, it's you'll see when you look at this and you think about it, it's basically the scientific method, right? So, but they have basically, they're a design school. This is Stanford's D School. And so they have been teaching the design thinking course, the kind of premier design thinking course around the world for a while. And then they had a unit as part of that course called Design Your Life, which is essentially applying design thinking to solve your personal life problems. Like, what should my career be? And how can I make my relationship better? And how can I be a better person? And that unit became so popular that they launched it as a standalone course. And it's now the most popular course that they hold. That really is fascinating and warrants a, an entire separate discussion. So, a throwaway comment of um, using design thinking to be that broad, I didn't realize that it could go all the way to, to personal life, but I could totally see its impracticalities. So, yeah, the question I suppose is like, can see how design thinking can be used to solve everything from pricing problems to business process to a range of things. It's not just a designer drawing up designs and it's not a UI UX thing only. Another term that gets thrown around a lot um, is human-centered design and sometimes people accidentally interchange the two. Do you want to maybe just describe how human-centered design uh, is different? It obviously sort of goes hand in hand with um, design thinking, but um, maybe just in your own words, how you think about those two terms. Yeah. So, human-centered design and design thinking are really two ways of trying to describe a very similar process. And when you look them up, you know, even if you look them up on Google Images, you'll see a lot of the same diagrams coming up. So, if we go back to design thinking about saying maybe design thinking is thinking like a designer, but applied to kind of non-design problems. So, a way that you can take this designy way of thinking out into other non-design areas. Human-centered design is more focusing on this idea that we put literally put the humans at the center of our design process. So we much like design thinking, we start with empathizing and understanding our users and and our humans and our people 
and we we constantly validate and test with them. But the way that I explain this when I teach it is that it kind of seems like a truism or it kind of seems obvious when we talk about it that this is how things should be. But there is a lot of design going on in the world that isn't human-centered. So what I ask people to think about is if you're not focusing on the users or the humans, what are other things that you could focus on as a design process that's not that? And usually students kind of scratch their heads for a bit and then people start piping up. And some of the things that we hear is like profit, for example. You could be designing something that's just the cheapest, most efficient way of doing it. Um, Security. Sometimes a really secure solution is not actually super user or human friendly. You could be designing something because you really want to win an award. That is a thing that a lot of people do. Think of like movies that we say, oh, that's just like Oscar fodder. You know, it's like maybe that wasn't designed to be the best film ever. Maybe that was kind of designed to to win a bunch of awards. Other things, it could be designed just for aesthetic reasons. So it could be super slick, like really minimalist and perfect and beautiful. And like you look at it and you, you just kind of, wow, it's just so sexy. But then when you actually try to use it, it's a bit confusing. Could have aesthetics overriding, you know, human needs. So the way I see human-centered design is kind of this fundamental focus and agreement that you are really going back to the humans and you're going back to the users and you're constantly validating against them. And you all agree that the goal of your design process is to create human value, not any of these other types of value. So welcome to the Quickfire Round, our game show style segment where we ask questions and you have 10 seconds to answer. Millie, are you ready? I'm ready. What company, Millie, has wowed you recently? Um, uh, uh, Twitter. (laughs) Really? Twitter? Okay. Yeah, I've been kind of wowed by just how Twitter is becoming... I, I just have been using it more than I ever have before and I think it's just becoming like where you find out what's going on in the world. Where do you go to upskill? You know, books, YouTube, podcasts, something else? Medium. Mm, medium. Medium blog posts. I love it. Chocolate, caramel, vanilla or strawberry? Pick one. Caramel. But salted caramel? Oh. <laughs> I think we can allow it. I don't agree, but we can allow it. <laughs> I'll allow it. Millie, what's the craziest thing you've ever done in your life? That's a ridiculous question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean, I'm crazy, frequently doing crazy things. Probably the craziest thing I ever did was quit. I thought I was going to be a journalist and I just quit that job and decided to be a web developer with no training. And we are all benefiting from that. I hope so. That's great. Uh, Favourite holiday destination? Um, I'd really like to go to Mallorca. There's some good cycling to do there. What's rocking your world at the moment? I've been watching a Netflix series called Wormwood about MKUltra and CIA mysteries and the direction and sound design and narrative of it is very compelling. So it's kind of rocked my world. What skill are you terrible at? I'm terrible at ball sports. <laughs> uh, what's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure sleeping in. I know I should get up earlier and do stuff, but I just really like a good sleep in. 
when we look out at the world uh, and our interactions with businesses and government bodies and all, all the like, it's pretty obvious that not everybody is employing a design thinking methodology because a lot of it sucks, right? Just to be quite frank. So, it's immediately obvious that design thinking is is really valuable for organizations. Why is it so difficult to get people to start using it? A lot of organizations are built because they have leaders who have very strong personalities and strong opinions and a lot of power structures in traditional hierarchical companies basically are set up so that people in upper levels of management can dictate what they want and get the people down the chain to fulfill their wishes and to do all the hard work to make their dreams come true. And design thinking and human-centered design and, and these ways of doing things fundamentally challenge that by saying you're in a suit and, you know, you've been here for X years and you get paid more than me and you're in all of the strategy meetings and you sit in the fancy corner office. But that doesn't mean you're right about how to do things here because the people who know what's right are the people who are the closest to the users and they're the people who are listening to what our users actually need. And the only way that we're going to build something that's going to work is to go back and really deeply and fully understand not just the problem but the people who are having that problem. So it challenges existing power structures. I think that that is fundamentally the biggest problem with design thinking because you know what, it doesn't cost a lot of money. You can do this with post-it notes, Sharpies and a few pieces of paper. It doesn't cost that much time because actually probably most really uh, opposite processes cost way more time in maintenance and mistakes and blowouts of projects and eternal Gantt chart problems. It's not those things. It's the political side of it that I think is the real problem. And I think there are a lot of people in organizations who aren't willing and humble enough to say, I have opinions on this, but they're not necessarily the right answers. So, Millie, let's let's kind of dig into that a little bit more because I want to ask you why design thinking? Where's the value? Like when you're trying to explain why this is a good process, what do you tell people? It's a conversation that I have had quite recently. And what's really frustrating about that is that I can provide you with lots of evidence and all the think pieces, but actually once you've experienced it, that's really where you start to get it. There are like certain kind of compelling things out there. One of them is that there's been some studies about quite successful large businesses and they categorize them as ones that have engaged with design thinking seriously or not, which they have a few different criteria. One is like, is there kind of a like a VP design uh, position at your company or a CPO or, you know, a high-level strategic design leader? Do you engage in design thinking practices? Do you have like a sizable design department or that kind of stuff? And what they found in this kind of study over quite a few years was that the organizations that are engaging seriously with design and design thinking are actually more profitable. Like it's actually becoming a good business move, which is really interesting. I think, you know, those kind of studies can be a bit difficult because I don't, for me, I don't think the answer is because it's more profitable. I think the answer is because you make better products and because those products 
fundamentally help you cut down other costs um, and other time sinks in your business, which doesn't just save you money, but it allows the people who work for you who really deeply know your product to spend their time more valuably, like spend their time doing things that are just much higher value, more creative. So for example, if you can engage with design thinking and build a product that is more intuitive and better serves your users' needs and makes a lot more sense to them, you should see a decrease in support costs and you should see less answering the phones with weird questions and you should see less time on live chat. You should see a lot more people just getting on with it and getting value out of your product. And that means that you might have people in your company that were previously basically servicing those user requests who have very deep knowledge of your product who are now available to help feed into that product design process and actually create more value for customers than they previously were. If you think about how some of the services that are just really crucial to people could be transformed by this approach and how how much of a difference it can make in people's lives, especially in instances where, you know, especially when we think about healthcare and we think about, you know, mental health services and homelessness and all this kind of stuff, like design thinking is a way of solving some fairly serious problems and not just websites, but service design as well. Like if we can apply this kind of thinking to problems that are really, you know, big problems in the world. And they have, like, if you look at the book, The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman, and he talks about some of the ways that design thinking has been applied to solve kind of food and water crises in the third world and stuff like that. Like there's some really interesting stuff going on. So I think, you know, if you're not compelled by the profit side of it, you should be compelled by the human side of it, which is that it is just actually kind of just the right way to do it ethically. And even if it's not because it's going to make you a lot of money, it should help you understand that you'll have more impact in the world by doing so. Millie, I can really see how design thinking comes to life when you're both building a product and optimizing a product, especially when it's software. And it's probably quite clear about who would lead a design thinking-like process in building a product and a software product. And it's sort of built in that, you know, agile way. But given that design thinking can be used to, I don't know, reinvent a sales process, change a returns policy, thinking about marketing, thinking about even strategic business decisions, who could lead a design thinking process outside of you know, designers and in a software world? Do you need to bring in a consultant each time or do you think people can start bringing this design thinking to I'm a sales manager and I'm running a sales team and this, these are our key problems, I want to use design thinking? My first answer is going to be if you like the sound of this and it's compelling and you think you could use it to solve some of those kind of problems and it's your job to solve those problems but your job title isn't designer or design consultant, I think you should just give it a try. And, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there. The deeper question there is a, a who is allowed to do this question almost or who is right to do this? And that's a cultural question. That's a question for organizations. And are people at your organization allowed to bring in new problem-solving frameworks? And how will that fly? And who do they have to get permission from? And how do you get important stakeholders on board and participating in this? Because that's kind of also, can you get access to users? How do you organize having FaceTime with people? All of that kind of stuff plays into how you would 
implement this kind of process and you don't need a a degree and a certification to be a, a design thinker. But the bigger question of who is allowed to do it at your organization and what happens when they do try it, I think that is a really big question for companies to ask themselves about yeah, how is power distributed and how do we encourage creativity and innovation and not just lock it up in the boardroom with the people in the suits who have access to the profit margins? How do we distribute it and allow everyone in our teams to have the tools and the training and the motivation and the encouragement to solve problems this way? Because if it's not just the sales manager, it's the sales rep. It's, you know, it's the person who is on the phone. It's the person who is at the counter. And those people can be using this kind of process to solve their problems, even just in the course of a day. But it's a matter of, I think this is the, the cultural issue of it is like about building a, a place to work where people feel comfortable doing so. No, that makes total sense. It's almost like there's two things there. One is effectively the culture of decision-making. Is it the most senior person that gets the loudest voice? Is it the person with the loudest voice gets the decision-making and just how that's done? Uh, Because I think a lot of people go from problem to ideation to best idea in the room. There may even not even be a a culture of loudest voice wins. It could be culture of consensus and decision-making. So, really point one is what is the culture and how you make decisions? And then second is if you want to have a crack at design thinking it's who's actually going to orchestrate and lead that process because if i'm in the finance team and i think that the way that we send out our invoices and paying that sucks um and i want to throw design thinking at this then am i allowed to talk to our customers you know (laughs) like marketing may jump in and go no no (laughs) you're the finance team don't do that so you know who leads and orchestrates this process is another thing it almost feels like organizations and people could ironically run this like an experiment You, you know you could actually say hey for a couple of months we want to try a modern way of running decision making here are some examples of how it works well in these organizations you know you may need to bring someone in to help you but let's just say someone wants to have a crack right now (laughs) at the end of this uh, podcast so you've mentioned a few resources which we'll have links to but what other resources do you think are really really excellent uh, for someone who goes I actually want to handhold my team or my organization or I want to throw this at my own problems what are some of the best resources that you you can recommend Okay, so the Stanford Design Thinking online bootcamp is great. It's a few hours, but they kind of walk you through a whole end-to-end process and you can kind of play along at home. Google Ventures book Sprint about their five-day design sprint is basically a deep dive into various different techniques that you can use to bring some of this thinking into your workplace and to to prototype and test big ideas, but you could use them equally on small ideas. So it's a framework for organizations specifically targeted at kind of ambitious startups, but there's a lot that you can just learn from reading through that book. It's very well written and really engaging. Yeah, Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things uh, is a bit of a background into human-centered design and specifically not around UI design, but kind of his background is actually in everyday objects like doors and yeah, it's got kettles and everything in that book yeah yeah um so he there's a term called like the norman door for example which is referring to a door where there is like a handle on both sides and 
you don't know whether you should push it or pull it. <laughs> so there's a sign on it to correct it and the sign says push or pull, but the sign is correcting a bad design. So essentially his idea with a Norman door is that if you have to put a sign to correct the design, your design needs improvement. So there's another thing about that, which is like good design is like a good joke. It shouldn't really need explaining. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a lot of really good writing out there. I would highly recommend following someone like Jared Spool. And he writes a lot about usability. And there's a guy called Steve Krug. Yes, I was about to mention Don't Make Me Think. I love it. I think the other one is like rocket surgery made easy. For user testing. Yeah, so usability being this kind of subset of good design but with this idea of feedback and affordance or discoverability. Uh, so the idea that there are kind of many heuristics of usability, but when we're particularly testing kind of whether a design is intuitive, um, we're looking to understand how people think design products that match the way that they think rather than giving them products that are confusing or in the wrong paradigm. And yeah, his work around that is really important to understand. For just some more general design, design thinking, reading, there's a website called A List Apart and they publish books under the imprint A Book Apart and they have um, some of the, the brightest minds in design putting together practical guides to how to apply this stuff. And I highly recommend quite a few of their titles. Uh, you, you need to win an award right now <laughs> for the best list of resources ever to a question. I was going to say, <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like I'm coming away from this interview with like a whole bunch of homework to do, but like I'm so <laughs> excited to do it. There's so many like great resources and we will compile a list with hyperlinks to, you know, the books on Amazon and all the websites and courses that you recommended in the show notes for this episode. So, it'll be really easy to get a summary of all the good stuff that we've talked about. Can I actually just add one more? In Perth, there's a company called um, Skills of the Modern Age and what they do is basically run workshops and sessions for especially like big organizations to start bringing design thinking to life. And he's probably one of the best design thinking guys that I've come across and just really help them go on that organizational change, you know, running lunch and learns and workshops and showing this stuff. Well, Millie, thank you for coming on the show. We had a blast. Thank you. All right, Adam, what an incredible conversation about design thinking. We've had design thinking on our list of like must hit topics for quite a while and it was great to like really do a deep dive into this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I can't wait to unpack this one with you. So, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I'm, look, I was pretty familiar with design thinking. I'd, I'd, I'd read some of the books that Millie mentioned, and we do our best uh, internally to, to take this approach as, as much as possible. Probably haven't systematized it and, you know, really put in that framework, so I'm quite motivated to do that now. But the thing that really stood out to me was how similar design thinking was to the scientific method, actually. And she, she mentioned it a, a few times, but, you know, if you sort of break down the scientific method in its simplest form, it's basically starting with making some observations, being curious and asking some interesting questions well why is this happening come up with a few hypotheses test them get some data around that and go yep this is worth you know exploring further and we've got something going on here and then you know rinse and repeat that cycle and just how similar yeah the design thinking was to that that was something that was a, a really 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 strong takeaway and, and sort of leads in quite nicely to the lean startup and that process in terms of going through that scientific method so yeah that was one really big standout for me 
Look, that actually leads quite nicely into the takeaway that I had, which was really around gathering evidence for your Mm. assumptions. So, when we talk about, you know, scientific method, there's an evidence gathering portion of that. I think what's really interesting is, you know, quite often in organisations, decisions are made based on, you know, whoever's the most powerful person in the room or sometimes the best idea wins or, you know, sometimes there's decision by consensus. But really, none of those are actually the right approach. What is... The best way of operating is to gather evidence to to challenge mm. the assumptions you have, right? And right. so, what's what's really great about design thinking, and it kind of happens twice in the five stages of design thinking. At the start, you challenge your assumptions around what the problem is, um, and you actually speak to people and, and ask what they're experiencing, and you get evidence, and then you can actually make sure when you're developing and ideating, you're solving the right problem. And then it happens again, though, when you actually go to solve the problem and you right. develop a prototype and then you test that in market or with stakeholders or with customers or, or with people. And and then you're gathering evidence about whether, you know, the solution that you've prototyped is the right solution. So, rather than, you know, having all these strange uh, and interesting ways of, um, of making decisions within an organization, the best way is to do it based on evidence. Which leads into the third uh, point also quite nicely, which is to do this, uh, to really do design thinking, uh, it requires a moment of actually sort of deeply thinking about your culture around decision making. So, like we said, is it the loudest person in the room, most senior? Are we all trying to like get to some sort of consensus here? Or are we using a process uh, to be led by the evidence with the right questions to make a decision? So, I think it, it requires thinking through of is the culture right to be able to shift the way that we make decisions? The last one I had is one that I think we may have moved past quite quickly in the actual interview, but I wanted to take this moment to kind of zero in on it. There was a moment there when Millie was talking about users and and customers, and she didn't really use those words very often throughout the interview. Mm, Hardly ever. She defaulted a lot more to humans and people. And so, it's. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, it humanizes the customer or it humanizes the user and thinking about the people that we are trying to design experiences for, design processes for, design products for, to make it really delightful, which is what this podcast is all about. I think it pivots us in the right direction when we start to think of people as people and not as some arbitrary user, some weird concept of a customer that we may or may not understand. They're just people like you and I. And so, it opens up opportunities with A, like, would I find this delightful? Or B, it kind of positions you down the road of design thinking to actually go and speak to them. You know, a customer is not just this weird arbitrary thing out there. It's somebody that you should go and talk to, a person you should talk to. So, let's sum them up. We'll go through the uh, the four takeaways. Yeah. So, for me, um, the simplest way to think about design thinking is it really is a scientific process to solve human problems. The next takeaway was make sure you're employing design thinking to gather evidence for your decision making. Thirdly, really, it's worth deeply thinking about where does the nexus of power lie in how you solve problems and specifically how you make decisions. And just be aware that to do design thinking, you're really going to have to shake some of that up. And finally, it's worth reframing the terminology that we use when we talk about customers. So, you know, using people, humans or their personas. 
All right, and that's a wrap. Please reach out to us with any uh, thoughts, comments. We love hearing from you. The best way is to actually just add us both onto LinkedIn. You will see us uh, start wrapping up the episodes and putting out more helpful content on LinkedIn as well. And, you know, we'd love to see your comments and any messages with ideas or feedback that you have. You can catch me on LinkedIn. I am Michael Momsen. And I'm on LinkedIn as Adam Jaffrey. Thanks so much. Awesome. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rateit, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback. Rateit offers a range of really innovative ways for you to gather more useful feedback from your customers so that you can build more delightful experiences for them. To find out more, head to rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This podcast is produced in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. And our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Finally, we love hearing from the Customer Experience Leaders fans. So please reach out and connect with Michael and myself on LinkedIn. We love to hear your feedback, guest or topic suggestions. Until next time, I'm Adam Jaffrey. We'll speak to you in two weeks. 